Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tim Bond from Barclays Capital. I'm responsible for asset allocation strategy. And Michael? I'm uh, Mike Dix. I'm uh, Chief Economist, I think, my proper title, at Barclays Wealth. Um, Starting with you, Tim. Um, You've uh, got a major essay in the paper, which is, uh, sorry, a major essay in the the report, which is about um, how demographics um, affects global savings and how global savings has that effect on our expectations of total returns. What's your, what the kind of big headline kind of pieces of analysis that you come through from your work? Are we likely to expect a pretty decent run in terms of equities over the next few decades, or are we going to face problems as our ageing population starts to demand and their savings and draw down their pensions? That was a very leading question. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I think um, our, our, our conclusion is that um, the returns from equities over the next decade are going to be um, a bit better than they have been uh, over the past um, 10 or 11 years. Um, And the driving force behind that conclusion is that returns um, over the last decade have been hampered by uh, really two things, one of which was the extremely expensive valuations or the bubble valuations that, you know, were were out there in sort of between the period of 1996, I guess, to about 2002. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then the, you know, subsequent deflation of that valuation bubble. Um, Now, the... What we understand as being the driving force behind that was, is, is relatively simple. It was uh, uh, a, a big change in demographics. The 80s and 90s were characterized by a very large expansion in the high savings age population um, in the developed uh, industrialized economies. Uh, and that trend um, sort of peaked uh, around about the turn of the millennium. Um, since then, we've been slowly seeing retirement uh, uh, retirees uh, 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 start to increase in number um, in the West. We're seeing the rate, the rate of growth of the newly retired population starting to pick up. Um, and at the same time, in many countries, we've seen the high savings age population start to shrink uh, as a proportion of the, the general population. Um, now, equities are, are very sensitive, we feel, to these demographic processes. And part of the essay is about you know, trying to provide some statistical proof uh, for that conclusion. Um, the upshot of it, of that analysis is though, that we, we think we've got a framework that allows us to project where we think the equity market's rating is going is to go over the next decade, pretty much you know, purely on, this, on these demographic uh, factors. Um, and that suggests to us that 
with markets at the moment trading on a sort of forward PE of somewhere between 15 and 16 for this year, um, we think on that basis that the derating over the next decade is going to take you down to about 11 to 12, something like that, uh, in that kind of range. It's, it's difficult to be any more precise than that. Um, now, that sounds pretty bad, but it's not as bad as coming all the way from you know 30 down to 15. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot and also the fact is that you've still got earnings growth coming through from, from the overall GDP growth. The economy's exactly, growing exactly, and earnings exactly. are growing. So that also deals with that element of derating. Exactly, yeah. So we're, we, historically, if you, you know, you look... Um, uh, you look over sort of the back history for earnings or national accounts profits. I mean, the, the annual rate of growth averages out at somewhere between six or seven percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so even with this uh, derating that we're this continued derating we're expecting for equities, um, once you've taken account of earnings growth and you've taken account of reinvesting dividends, yeah. you know, each year, and that's a very important part of your return. Um, the sort of numbers we wind up with in terms of you know projected ten-year return from a developed uh, economy equities, it, it, the numbers are around about seven percent, which is a little below the the long term historical average, isn't it? Exactly, it's below it's below the long run historic average, but it's a hell of a lot better than negative, which is where we've been yes, over the last, last couple of years. Well, now let, let's look at this because if you're talking about the relationship between demographics and return, I, mean, I suppose the way that some people might simplistically understand it is that if there are an awful lot of people who are saving and they, they produce an awful lot of savings that has to be invested, and that large amount of savings ends up forming a bit of a glut, and wherever you have the large supply of anything, uh, relative to demand, that tends to lower the rate of return, which we have seen. Equities have been quite low, low, return, low returns on equities. But that as, they, as they start to use up their savings, um, and they, the glut turns into a deficit, you would expect, presumably, investors would want a higher rate of return, because there's not so much savings and investment around, therefore they want more, more, um, more return for them. Is that, is that in simplistic terms, the, the switch that we're seeing? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. Um, it's, it's moving from an environment where there's been, um, as you say, a surplus of savings compared to sort of in, in viable investment opportunities, um, and a portion of our essays devoted to, to talking about how that saving surplus has caused a lot of the booms and bubbles and busts. Because there presumably be a lot of that surplus of savings has been spent on all sorts of terrible stuff. M&A, which of course destroys cap shareholder wealth over the long term and all sorts of stuff. Exactly, which, yeah. Which yeah. hasn't and helped investors. No, and inflated housing prices yeah. and all the rest of it. I mean, inflated real estate values and excessive M&A are the two, the two primary. Yeah, yeah it's been, certainly in the last two cycles, I would say that's been the... The main, you know, the main use of this sort of surplus of savings. Now, presumably, if we're moving from this great surplus of savings to to a potential smaller surplus or, or, or deficit of savings, presumably, therefore, that the people who are wanting that savings money as an investment, so uh, companies in terms of capex, uh, the move to a new carbon light economy, emerging markets, God forbid, the government, um, mm-hmm. all of these people mm-hmm. who are chasing this increasingly smaller pool of investment money. Presumably, that's the logic that says, well, actually, the rate of return must go up because you, if you would savings are saying, well, if all of you guys are competing for my money, I want a better rate of return. Yeah, exactly. Less savings and the same sort of appetite to borrow or to, 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 to invest. Um, you know, it drives up the, the yeah, rate of return, I suppose, or yeah. the, the, demand, the rate of return that's demanded by investors. Um, and I think the most visible symptom of that is, is going to be a steady climb in long-term interest rates. I mean, that's what our modelling yes. tells us. Yeah. 
Um, presumably that's bad for bonds, isn't it? Yes, and that's that's exactly right. And that's <clears throat> so. The, our conclusion from the analysis really is that although you've been much better off in bonds, particularly government bonds, over the last you know decade relative to equities, that's now drawing to a close. And that as we move from a condition in, in which say you know you have a surplus of savings globally to one where they'll become a deficit, um, long-term yields are going to go up, and that's going to damage you know returns from bonds and damage them a lot. So we're not projecting anything more than about one percent, one and a half percent nominal return from you know investing in long-dated government bonds over the next uh, over the next decade. Yeah, presumably, so I mean, just thinking in a slightly bigger picture here, there's also a bigger issue here, which is I suppose long-term interest rates go up. Um, there is um, uh, not a glut, but a possible deficit of savings. I mean, that's going to be very tough on governments managing very, very high levels of debt, presumably, because not only will they have to pay a lot more for their debt, but also they'll be having to fight for that debt in the global capital markets. And you know, people won't be as willing as they have been, particularly in Japan, just to hand over a blank cheque to the government every year and say, "Here, I'll go and spend the money." Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the 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 demographic um, the demographic effect works in two ways. One of which is the all the liabilities um, for the boomer generation as they hit uh, as they hit retirement, um, and if you sort of take IMF or OECD estimates, that that effect on advanced economy debt GDP ratios that's worth about fifty percentage points of GDP. In other words, the advanced economy debt GDP ratio rises from government debt GDP ratio rises from about a <coughs> hundred where it is today. Um, to about 150 right. in 20 years' time. And that, that's just purely the ageing effect. That's before we start <coughs> talking about the effects of the last... So this crisis. is a very difficult environment, effectively, for government planners sitting in their treasuries and their central banks and everything because they're facing a, a very difficult, quite dark fi- funding and financing regime here where the, the demographic factors are kicking in, long-term interest rates are going up, this, that, not that the massive savings glut out there. Mm-hmm. So the old days of being able to basically just pass off your budget deficits and, and fund it, it's, it's, it's become much more difficult. Yeah, definitely. This is an unprecedented rise in, in international aggregate debt-GDP ratios. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've seen similar budgetary deteriorations um, in the past, but typically that, you know, they've only been for one or two countries, not yeah. for you know, a large part of the mm-hmm. world uh, in, in one go. Um, so, and, and the, the other side is not just simply the issuance of debt to pay for all the pensions yeah. and social security. It's the fact that there'll be just less savers around. Yes. And so the private sector savings balance goes from you know, positive to, to negative. Yeah. So you've got to import savings from somewhere. And the only parts of the world that have demographics trends that are different to the developed world are really places like Latin America or the Middle East or Africa. And it's not obvious that those countries can, over the next 20 or 30 years, become wealthy enough to generate a big enough surplus of savings to pay for the deficit of savings in, in the West. That's the, the big issue. Now, there's, um, there's an interesting issue. I'll come back to China in a minute, but um, because I'm interested in how the demographics are working out there. But presumably, with this, effectively, we've got a new scramble for international capital, effectively. You know, the developed world's not going to have as much capital to throw around as it has done before, and those countries with spare capital will presumably be in the prime position. But this scramble for capital, presumably we've also got going on in the background here other factors like the vast investment is going to be, have to be put into the carbon infrastructure, the carbon light infrastructure. How's this all going to play out? And companies wanting to upgrade their CapEx and you, you know, um, loads, of, loads of things happen. How this is all going to play out? Um, well, I, I, my own view is that a lot of the, um, the surplus and savings that, that has been sort of 
you know, in existence over the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, a lot of it's been wasted. Yeah. And the system's done a very bad job in uh, terms of in investing it efficiently. So if you take the last cycle uh, as an example, um, in the US, virtually all the, well, all the household borrowing was basically used to, to uh, you know, speculate in real estate. It was, it was buying and selling real estate, ever higher, infl- more inflated values. And in the corporate sector, um, I believe the non-financial corporate sector borrowed about $3 trillion over the course of the expansion, only three or 400 billion of which was spent on CapEx and the rest was spent on you know, M&A and buying back equity. So there's um, a lot of the savings has, has sort of been used, if you like, in a, in a, in a speculative manner and not in a uh, not in a traditional investment manner. So, so more efficient use of savings is is certainly one one you know one thing that you would expect to see, uh, one way of dealing with this problem. And and it's probable that you know the bigger the savings surplus you have, the less efficient the system is going to be. You know, because people become less discriminatory. Absolutely. There's always been enough capital to go around. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and presumably as well. I mean, this also will have an effect on things like taxation regimes. Presumably, if you're going to try and encourage savings, the last thing you want to do is overtax it. Right. So presumably, that must be a backdrop which suggests that the taxation regime might, in the developed world, might begin to favour savers. It should do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Looking at China. Um, um, now, China, what about its demographics? How's that? Because everybody's assuming that China's going to ride to the rescue here. You know, that China's, you know, there's great, great growth and great prosperity. They're, they've got their own version of the baby boomers moving through the system now. You know, you can only see it in the big cities like Shanghai. Presumably, they're going to come to our rescue, are they? Um, well, I think there's, there's, there's two, well, there's three points there. Um, China, China's per capita incomes definitely will be increasing over that period. So that means the wealth of, that China has will, will increase. And presumably... You know, Chinese savings will increase, but their demographics are not dissimilar to those of the West um, due to the one-child mm. uh, policy. So their age, old age dependency ratio moves up, um, you know, pretty pretty quickly uh, after the Western one. The Western okay. world starts to uh, uh, to move up, um, and then I suppose the other point you can make, which is macroeconomic, is that the surplus of savings that is visible in China. Um, in large part, that's a product of an artificially uh, cheap exchange rate. So a large portion of the savings is actually in the corporate sector, yeah. um, and it results from a, from a cheap exchange rate. So in as much as that exchange rate is probably going to drift up over the next you know, 10 to 15 years, and presumably they'll move to a managed float, then their national surplus of savings is likely to come down. And the same, the same implication comes from you know, the... the broad point that they have to introduce a broader welfare state and so yeah. forth. So you well. buy, I mean, I, I heard it put recently by one academic in America who just said actually this idea that there's a massive savings left in China is a bit of an illusion because it's all sitting around on people like steel companies, balance sheets and all this kind of stuff because actually the average private uh, individual in China's saving some money in order to spend it on things like healthcare and education Yeah. Um, and therefore this idea of this massive savings glut is a little illusory. I've, yes, I mean the the one that counts for the West is the corporate yeah. surplus of savings. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's definitely true, and that's a product of the exchange rate as much as. So presumably, it, it means therefore the Chinese aren't going to rise to the rescue. They're not going to be diverting large quantities of their savings to the West to be able to deal with our problems. Um, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. It, I mean, you have to. I mean, for the, if you take a sort of short term view, I mean, they're still clearly yeah. placing a lot of capital, you know, overseas and funding. You know, a large part of the U.S. deficit and so forth. Um, 
but taking a, a, a 5, 10, 15, 20 year view, I think that's definitely the case. You've got mounting demands from uh, the you know, industrialised uh, uh, and developed economies, diminished savings in those economies, and, and you know, probably fewer savings flows being recycled from the emerging markets. I mean, overall, in, in, in a kind of aggregate terms, it's not a very encouraging picture for people to go out and increase their savings ratio, is it? Because effectively you're saying long-term returns on equities, whilst better than they have been, will certainly not, not be back up to average levels over the last 100 years. Um, bonds doesn't sound particularly encouraging. So if I'm here sitting in my 30s and 40s saying I'm, I'm going to increase my savings and I'm going to increase my savings ratio... I'm not exactly being encouraged, although, to, to be fair, equities are likely to return more than they have done in the last 20 yeah. years. I mean, isn't that a real problem? Because effectively, don't we need to encourage people to save more? <laughs> well, yeah, and I think the derating in equities and the move higher in government bond yields that we're expecting is a part of that. I mean, that's the markets auctioning the rate of return on financial assets higher and higher yeah. in an effort to attract yes. those savings. Yes. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it'll, you know, the, the, system will, the system will balance itself, I think. But it's interesting, though, but what you are saying is that those people, I mean, particularly I think it's some countries have a much stronger bond culture in terms of private investors, for instance. Yeah. Germany has a much stronger bond culture in terms of private investors than equities. Um, UK and US slightly more equity-focused. But what you're actually suggesting is that those countries and those people who are very heavily bond-focused should be careful or should be cautious over yeah. the next 10 or 20 years because, you know, the, the, you, know the, you may not have the wind behind your sails, so to speak. Definitely, definitely. I think that's the point. I mean, bonds, you know, at some stage, <clears throat> you know, bonds will be a reasonable buy again. Um, but the the fundamentals that seem to determine, you know, a large portion of their of their of their yields are, you know, are deteriorating quite badly and do point to higher yields and that's yes. lower returns and all the rest. Yeah. Um, and I think that logic is, it, I mean, it's important for countries like Germany where you've got minimal equity exposure in yeah. pension schemes but it's, it's pretty important here in, so, you know, yeah. in the UK Big pension funds have moved quite aggressively exactly towards, yeah you've yeah. had a massive move and, and on some counts certainly on the uh, um, national statistics data um, it looks like pension funds in the UK are kind of equally weighted right. between equities and bonds you know around about 30-35% or 35% each and there is a <clears throat> you know there is a uh, a fairly big risk um, that if you you know if they if they persist with that kind of weighting and don't reweight into equities now that they've cheapened and bonds proportionally have gotten a lot more expensive, mm. um, that you know they do miss out on optimising, you know their returns. Which presumably would off. be a very bad idea because that's this comes at this kind of perfect storm. It comes at the same point at which their members in the pension schemes are living longer. Yeah. Um, and that they you know presumably governments will be tempted to raid various pension pots again. Um, it all comes at exactly the wrong time, really, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, the one thing you can say is if, is if government bond, long-term government bond yields go up, then the way, given the way actuaries calculate the liabilities for pension schemes, the, the liabilities will probably come down. Yes. So that's the sort of so yeah. the deficits and everything that you see in the press, you know, the media and, and yeah. all that, currently are, 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 are you know in part of big of very low rates. Yeah. yeah. Free, free, so those are sort of drift, yeah. drift away. But I just think from the, in terms of the ordinary. You know, in the ordinary practical investment approach, I mean, equities, you could argue, have been in a, you know, certainly for valuations, have been in a bear market for about 11 or 12 years now. And bonds haven't. So if you just take a very simple mean reverting 
yeah. approach to your asset allocation. You should be. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely understand that one. And in fact, we're, with Michael, in a minute, we're going to be talking about mean reversion. That was a leader. Exactly, quite explicitly. I just want to bring one because there is this sort of awkward word which is value that always crops into mm. the equation. I understand your point about um, a mean reversion, but a, a, a great many contrarian value investors are sort of on strike at 17 P ratios. Yeah. They say, well, it's not that cheap, is it? You know, and, and traditionally we've only ever dived back into the market when, you know, normalised or long-term P ratios or sickly adjusted P ratios are back down to even single figures or 10 or 11, and they're 17, 15, 16 at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not that cheap, so why should we mm-hmm. bounce back in? Well, um, I don't think we're. I don't think we're suggesting anyone should bounce back in. Actually, there wasn't. A, there wasn't. A, there wasn't yeah, a but the long run, long, over the long term, over, allocation, allocation. O- over the long run. Um, I mean, uh, the. I mean, the, the way the way we look at it is that equity markets have an equilibrium valuation, but it's not a fixed one. It, it's not fixed at sixteen or fifteen yes. and a half okay. or whatever the long run PE as, uh, average happens to be, but it sort of varies and it moves a bit like a sine wave uh, through history. Um, and the things that determine what the equilibrium PE valuation should be at any given time, um, we, you know, you can you can use certainly demographic factors and pin down movements in the PE pretty 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 closely. They're very effective explanatory variables. Um, so <clears throat> right now, where we are now in terms of you know the numbers of uh, uh, people who are starting to retire and the, the volume of you know the, the, the dimensions of the high savings age population. I mean that says fair value in um, in markets. It should be around about fifteen or fifteen okay. and a half as a PE. So we're sort of we're, we're kind of close to fair value, I guess, for for this year. Um, that those models suggest that the equilibrium PE slips over the next decade down to I think about a low of about eleven and a half or twelve, and then kind of drifts up a little bit towards the end of the decade. Yeah. Um, so when you you know when you when you take that into account and you just you, you, you assume some sort of normalised earnings growth, then, then yeah, you get the 7% okay. return yep. from equities. It's not spectacular at all. I mean, that's nominal, by the way. The average real return from equities, I think, in the US is about, is about the same number. So, yeah. you know, this is... 6.8 or 6.5. Yeah, exactly, 6.8. So this is definitely low, and it's not giving you much space in terms of uh, uh, inflation. And I think what the, the logic here, I think, is that, I mean, equity markets don't move in in a smooth sine wave, despite our models suggesting they ought to. (laughs) Unfortunately, they don't, um, which is lucky, because otherwise we probably wouldn't have jobs. Um, So, but but I think what it tells us is that that opportunistically, you know, one should be, you know, using any kind of major setbacks that you get in periodic bear markets to to re-wade into into equity. So last year was a classic case in point when you had bonds trade up, trade down to ridiculously yield levels and equities, you know, trade off violently. That was a very good time to re-wade. Now probably isn't because you've had a big recovery in the equity markets and bond yields have, have, have drifted up a bit. So it's not something you chase, but I think you want to sort of do this as a as a strategy over the next three or four years. Yeah. Because ultimately, equities of equity markets, you know, have done three quarters of their demographic. They've responded about seventy five percent of what you'd expect them to respond to this change in the demographic yeah. picture. Whereas bonds just haven't even started. Yeah, so painful, the painful process ahead for bonds. Equities a bit boring, but better than better than bonds. Better, better than better than bonds. Ultimately, all we're trying to do is, you know, hedge inflation, yeah, here, or, or or feed inflation, yeah. And I think if you're looking at long-term interest rates, 
in in the UK or the US or Europe head up into the sort of nine to ten percent region, you haven't got a hope of, of beating inflation. No, because the total return you'd be getting there is is very very low single digit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one very last question before I go to Michael, but one thing just sort of appeals to me as an investment idea here there is that if you've got a region of the world which is produced which where the demographics are looking good. And which is producing the savings glut. And, and I was talking only a couple of weeks ago to a Brazilian fund manager who was saying, you know, it's a great time to be in Brazil at the moment because all the domestic equity funds are beginning to expand because the Brazilians traditionally invest in bonds and now they're investing in equities. And in all the familiar language that we all know happened over the last 40 years, presumably uh, there's a, a, an internal mechanic that's working in those societies with a demographic giving them kicking in, with their own equity markets beginning to expand, those equity markets being able to demand a higher rate of return because they've got surplus capital. Arguably, it might be quite a good idea to weight perhaps a small bit of your portfolio to those areas where there's a demographic dividend. Yeah, exactly. I think. I mean, you have to be careful about that yeah. because those markets have a history of of, of being very volatile. Yes. Uh, now, the, the macroeconomic volatility of somewhere like Brazil is declining, yeah. and the realised volatility from their equity market is declining, but it's still quite high. Still quite high. So, <clears throat> it's a, that's a good <clears throat> switching from uh, essentially it's a switch from developed world equities or, or bonds into developing world. But what's, but what's interesting here is that straightforward view, which is, oh, well, just switch from developed world into emerging markets, yeah. in the very broader sense of the word, ca- captures too many disparate it does, yeah. demographic forces at work, and that you'd be, you'd be better off saying, well, actually, no, I'm a bit suspicious about China and Russia. Probably has the same problems, yeah. I imagine, demographic problems, its own demographic problems. Yeah. Um, you might be looking more at places like Brazil Absolutely. And, and arguably India. Um, so where they don't have the same demographic issues. Absolutely, Brazil and India. But would you? But the the, the also the point is when when one does that switch, you want to do it near the bottom of the cycle rather than yeah. top. Yeah. I think if you're doing doing it at the top, then yeah, you know, you can't forget good. the price you pay at the beginning is going to determine long-term profit. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if the world has a recession in two or three years' time, mm-hmm. the Brazilian stock market will go down more than say yeah. the German stock market. And then will be a good time. But then's a good time to do the trade, not necessarily now when you're no. when you're looking to recover. Exactly. Okay, uh, Michael. Now you, you talking of um, cycles and, and asset prices and, and even bubbles. Um, you've been looking at uh, a way of looking at bubbles and spotting bubbles, with a, with, a, with a not overly complicated way of looking at whether or not things are expensive or not compared to their past returns. Is that right? Explain how you've been applying this like this thinking about annual returns and volatility to building a portfolio, say of ETFs that does everything in real estate to emerging markets. Okay, well let's um, start by describing the sort of processes one where I'm thinking about what I call long-term tactical asset allocation. And what I mean by that is not every month or quarter, but once a year mm-hmm. I'm going to make adjustments to the portfolio. So you could almost call it strategic, but not in the way that Tim's talking about the next cycle or something like that. Um, so we've got a bunch of different assets that we want to look at. Yep. And we actually have two different approaches. The first one we say, okay, we only want to look at past returns and their mm-hmm. volatilities mm-hmm. to judge you know, whether to be over or underweight each of the asset classes. Mm-hmm. We actually call it a rare approach, with a rare standing for risk-adjusted returns equilibrium. Right. And that, in its name, suggests that what you're doing is looking at the returns on each of the asset classes, adjusting them for the volatility, mm-hmm. so you're looking at their sharp ratios. Mm-hmm. And then the reason we use the word equilibrium is we're assuming that if for some reason one particular asset class has done a lot better than it has in the long run, say over the past year, then there'll come a time where there's payback. So there's mean reversion and it has a year where it does a lot worse than average, and maybe the next year. 
Likewise, those well, those that are in a sense done very poorly of late, you know, they'll catch up at some stage. So, in, in, in essence, what you're saying here is is that economists like plot and graphs, where they measure standard deviation, which is a measure of risk or, or, or change in, in the prices of something against returns on an annualised basis, and presumably the ideal thing in all investments, you're looking for something that produces. A better return for lower risk would be the ideal combination. A poor return for higher risk would be the uh, very bad idea. But when you're plotting these two on the graph, you're, you're look, effectively you're looking at each of the asset classes over long periods of time and saying, well, actually, this has produced a really good rate of return with low volatility. Um, that's good. Um, and, and actually, the, it, it's due a correction at some point. All things mean revert. All, you know, the contrarian view is it was done incredibly well. It's probably not a good thing to be in. Is that... In a sense, summary. Yeah, let me. It's a little bit more complicated. Yes. So let me go through. So you've got the right idea, but if you imagine uh, you're drawing a ray from the origin to each of those points Mm -hmm. that's representing a point in return volatility space, you can rank all the asset classes in a sense according to the the angle that you've drawn of your line through the origin. So cash might be very close to the origin with a low return and low volatility. Somewhere out in the sort of where Pluto would be if it was a solar system, <laughs> you've probably got some quite sexy looking asset classes with high returns, but you probably pay for that so like in terms of volatility. Emerging market equity or something. Yeah. Now you can imagine ranking all your assets from the most boring to the most mm-hmm. exciting, sexy things. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine doing that over a long period of time. So you mm-hmm. can think of that as your equilibrium. Mm-hmm. So let's call Korean equities the, the most exciting asset class in the universe, mm-hmm. number 20. Cash can be one at the yeah. other extreme. But the idea of the uh, trading rule, if you want to call it that, yeah. is we draw exactly the same chart, but do it just for the last year's worth of data. Okay. In that time period, maybe Korea was still 20th, but probably it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So you're saying, where is it on the chart now compared to where it is in the long run? Mm-hmm. If it's delivered a low return mm-hmm. relative to what you're used to expecting, used to seeing in From that 20-year period, yeah. exactly, given its volatility... So if it's been low, chances are it's due some catch-up, yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. If an asset class has done a lot better relative to others of late, chances are it's going to have a bad period ahead. So you're looking at the ranking of their sharp ratios, of their risk-adjusted returns, this is a measure of short-term returns, yeah. relative to long-term. Yeah. And the, the idea of the short-term is you're then twisting it over and saying over the next year, I'm going to get some payback both directions, up and down, for the ones that have been down and up. So it's not a very complicated system in terms of calendar structure, is it? You're just at the end of every year, you're just ranking them all, and you're going, actually, that one's done really, really well, so we're going to rank, in moving forward, that's going to go lower part of our portfolio. That one's done very badly, so moving the next year, we're going to move that higher up our list of portfolio priorities. Effectively, just weighting your portfolio back and forth based on the last year, of returns and how that last year of returns to that asset class is compared over the long term to that asset class. Precisely. And I think you know that what we find is if you do that, uh, if the robot, if you like, does it yeah. for you each year, um, it reduces the volatility of the returns of the portfolio as a whole a lot Which compared to, say, an equally weighted portfolio yeah. or a traditional sort of naive 60-30-10 one. If we really want to get juice, so if we really want to boost the returns, then we find we need a second approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, the approach there is rather different. So you're looking in, in a sense, as an economist would, and saying, I care about the real returns, not mm-hmm. the nominal returns. That's after a classic inflation. Exactly. So I adjust them all for consumer prices. Yep. And then I say, probably the most boring asset classes 
tend to go up in line with GDP, yeah. but with a, a low sensitivity to that. Maybe they go up one for one. Yeah. Whereas the Korean thing or something exciting, exciting. might go up three or four times as fast as yeah. GDP. So this time, rather than rank them just on their risk-adjusted returns, mm -hmm. we rank them by seeing how do they compare compared with that long-run trend that we can draw yeah. based on GDP for each asset class. Yeah. Some will look cheap, some will look dear, and then the idea is exactly the same, that if they're, they seem to be very cheap, they're probably due a good period ahead. If they're very dear, they're probably due some payback in the form of declines or low returns. So this second model, which um, is your more macro model, is that macro right? macro model, exactly. Um, so effectively what you're saying there is, let's just say that GDP growth, um, real GDP growth, is say 2% a year. Um, if some asset class goes up by 2% a year, it's a one-for-one -one relationship. If an asset class like Korean equities or Chinese equities goes up 6%, it's got a kind of three-to-one relationship. And effectively that relationship that uh, coefficient is that, is that coefficient mm -hmm. is used in your macro systems to sort of dictate how you organise your ranking. Exactly, that determines what I call the long run ranking. Yeah. So some asset classes, if you like, are very sensitive and some are not. Once you've got that long run ranking, you know you're looking at what's happened in the short term again, meaning what's happened over the last year. That's where you're trying to use the macro in that sense of yeah. maybe it's cheap compared to that long run performance. Maybe it's expensive. Maybe it's smacking line. And there's just two thoughts jump to mind here. Um, one is the power of mean reversion. Is that you know everybody talks about mean reversion in the kind of cavalier way. Oh, everything goes back to the mean eventually. But you are saying it is enormously powerful. And secondly, here what's, what's quite fascinating is is that um, different asset classes um, respond different uh, respond differently over different periods of time. And that many people make the mistake of only looking at the long term, don't they? They go, oh, well, the long term return is this. But what you're saying is you have to marry both a short term and a long term view and hook them up and accept that asset classes move differently over different periods of time. Is that effectively what you're saying? No, that's exactly right. So, you know, you could have a different trading rule if you were going to take a two year horizon because yeah. different asset classes will have mean reverted by different proportions, if you like, from yeah. their original gaps. So you need to take that into account. And, and to be honest, I was surprised. You, know, you end up with a much higher return relative to variance of a portfolio than I would have expected. Mm. You get about 12% uh, per annum with a 4% volatility. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited-edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. 
They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM.